passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, So good uh, to be here as we continue our journey through the book of Colossians. Uh, We've been in Colossians for the past month or so, and as we've been working our way through this book, uh, I hope that we've been reminded time and time again of uh, the most central part or piece of our identity in the face of any and every competing claim in our lives and in our society. And that most central piece of our identity is that we are united with Christ. That Christ is in us and that indeed is the hope of glory. You see, it is our union with Christ that produces fruit in our lives. It is our union with Christ that redeems us, and it is our union with Christ as Gentiles that is the great and incredible mystery of the gospel. This morning's passage continues this great and glorious journey, not a journey of of self-discovery, but instead uh, of discovering Christ in us and the incredible gift that that is for us in Christ's church. This morning's passage is a a crucial one, not just for the church in Colossae, but also for us this morning as well, because it, it wrestles with a question that each and every one of us answers every single day, every single hour, every single decision that we make expresses our belief on where we will find satisfaction, where we will find fulfillment in our lives. Every person who has ever lived, from the most devout religious person to the most hardened atheist, is searching for fulfillment. Consider Anne. She is a widowed woman of 84 who has spent her entire life in the church. She has rarely missed a Sunday and at a prayer service. She's looking for any and every way to serve the church. And it's all because she's looking for meaning and fulfillment. Consider Jim, the epitome of the worldly man. He has never had much time for the church. He's always been too busy with his boat or being outdoors in the summer, football on Sundays in the fall, uh, spending Saturday night trips to the bars on, uh, during the winter and, and house projects in the spring. And in all of this, being in the outdoors, the football, the bars, the house projects, all of those are a part of his search for fulfillment, for meaning. Consider Sally and Bob. Sally and Bob married young right after Bible college, and Bob entered the ministry as a youth pastor. But as Sally and he grew older and they had more children, he transitioned into adult ministries. But that wasn't the only transition that took place. There was a shift that took place in their hearts. As their family grew, their desires for comfort And their desires for the latest toys began to compete with their desire to serve God in His church. And while they continued to serve in ministry, they did so behind a mask that hid a cold heart, that hid a desire for the end of the workday just so He 
could spend time doing what he really enjoyed, to search for meaning and fulfillment. Consider Mason, a high school junior. He spends hours thinking of the perfectly crafted post for Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat. And after the post, he sits anxiously watching his phone for notifications, waiting, longing, pleading for the likes to come in. His anxiety and his self-worth are tied not only to the number of likes that he gets, but also how that compares to those that his friends receive. He's searching for meaning for fulfillment, for significance. Consider Sarah, a religious skeptic after recently graduating from college. She grew up in the church, and yet after a few philosophy courses at the state university, she concluded that all religions were basically the same, and they were all a part of an evolutionary coping mechanism that gives us hope in the midst of the endless, bleak, nothingness, nothingness of life. Ironically, in having the courage to admit this, Sarah has found fulfillment, meaning, purpose, and significance. All of us are searching for meaning. All of us are searching for fulfillment. And as we turn to Colossians this morning, I want you to ask, where am I searching for fulfillment? Where am I searching for for meaning. Let's pray once more. Lord Jesus, we desperately need you. We need you to send your spirit to come and reveal our hearts to us. God, we confess that we are masters of deception, that we deceive others and even ourselves by hiding our true hearts. God, we need the scalpel of your Spirit to come and perform loving, gentle, and yet sometimes painful surgery to reveal our greatest desires and where we search for fulfillment in so many places that are not in you. And so as we approach your word, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come and that you would teach us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 6. Please follow along as I read verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. Paul begins here with a therefore, which is a reminder to us that Paul is is referring back to everything that he has said up to this point. Everything that he says in these two verses is based on what Paul has said in the previous chapter. Up to this point, Paul has talked about our vision of who Jesus is, and he really wants to expand our vision of who Jesus is. Just like a telescope magnifies something that is far away and yet is massive. Paul turns the the telescope of our heart 
to the, the glory and the greatness of Christ, which is oftentimes far away from what we actually recognize and tries to make it bigger than it appears to us or more the size that it actually is. Paul says, with all that in mind, all that I've said in verses, uh, chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, remember how you received Christ. Remember how you received him in your conversion. You received him as Lord. Remember how you started in your faith. You looked to him as Lord. He was not just a Savior. He was the Lord of your life. Paul tells us it is unthinkable for us to think of, to receive Jesus as our Savior without also receiving Him as our Lord, especially in light of everything that we have read in Colossians up to this point. His saving work, His Lordship, His authority are inseparable. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously wrote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence where Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. His lordship extends over all creation, and how much more should that be true for those who are his saints? As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. What comes next? Paul says, continue walking in Him in the exact same way that you began. Paul constantly uses the the image of, of walking as a way of life. Paul says, as you have received Jesus as the Lord, as the sovereign Savior of your soul, that's not just how you start your faith, but that's also how you continue your faith. That is the sustaining breath of every moment to make sure that Jesus is sovereign in your life. Apparently, there was a temptation in Colossae to forget this fact. Having received Jesus as Lord in their conversion, they became disillusioned. They began to look elsewhere for greater meaning, for greater spirituality, greater happiness, greater peace, greater joy. And Paul, writing to them, says that fulfillment, meaning, is found in Christ Jesus as Lord. So walk in Him. If you really want fullness, if you really want rest, if you really want contentment, joy, look no further than the Lord, the King of all the universe, Christ Jesus. And so Paul continues what life with Jesus as Lord is like. He uses several powerful images here in verse 7. First, he says, rooted in him. He describes the, the life with Jesus as Lord as one that is rooted in him. Paul describes a life with Jesus as Lord using powerful agricultural imagery. He he says that life with Jesus as Lord is one of health, of connection to nourishment. It is one that leads to majesty being a beautiful planted tree. 
One thinks of David's words of the mighty oak tree in Psalm chapter 1, describing the righteous person. He says this, The righteous one is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Or consider the psalmist's words in Psalm 92, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. When I was five, my family moved into a new house that had zero trees on the entire property. And it seemed like for the next 10 years, my dad took that zero and he planted enough trees that there were like a hundred of them. We lived in town, so this was quite the feat, actually. But year after year, uh, he continued to water and prune and care for these trees. And year after year, the trees grew. Decades later, they span majestically, giving shade to those who would gather under them, but those trees would be worthless without a root system to keep them anchored and secure and sturdy in the storms and the high winds of life. A root is crucial in this life. Where are you rooted? Paul tells us that the only root that will actually last is the one that is dug deep into the soil of God's word that receives and continues to see Jesus as Lord. Paul uses another image here. He says, built up in him. Paul is describing a, a life in Jesus as, uh, as one using this agriculture, uh, first an agricultural metaphor. Now he's using a building metaphor, uh, a strong foundation, a foundation in the right place. One only needs to think of the uh, popular children's song, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Where you place your foundation for your life matters. The foundation of your life matters. Is it the rock of Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul continues with a, a second building metaphor here. He describes a, a life that is established in the faith. The first tells us where we should place our foundation, and here we, we see how we are continued to be built up. It is through faith. My two-year-old loves construction equipment. My wife would be the first one to tell you that he knows the names of more construction equipment than she does. He often goes to sleep with a toy payloader or a dump truck, and when he gets up in the morning, the first thing that he does, even as he is still in his crib, rubbing his eyes, trying to get awake, is saying, I have to go check on my vehicles. <laughs> he loves construction equipment, this awe-inspiring machinery used to establish buildings, roads, and more, and yet that is nothing compared to the awe-inspiring source of our faith, Christ Jesus the Lord. 
Paul points out that this is what they in Colossae have received from the very beginning. He's not telling the church anything new. He's simply saying the exact same thing that Epaphras said when Epaphras planted the church. There's no need to look anywhere else for meaning. Just continue to look at the beginning, to look at your root, your foundation, the one who establishes you. Christ Jesus, the Lord. Paul closes verse 7 by describing the result of all this. He says that we will abound in thanksgiving like a mighty river at flood stage, powerful, majestic, awe-inspiring, filling everything it can. We also are to abound with thanksgiving like a ceaseless, unending river so should our thanksgiving be. The one who focuses and builds his or her life on the foundation of the lordship of Christ will be rooted and established and abound in thanksgiving. I wish Paul's words stopped right there. I wish that that's all that Paul had to say to the church in Colossae. I wish that that's all that Paul had to say to us. But just like the church in Colossae, we're all, we're all too aware of our experiences of receiving Christ Jesus as Lord in conversion. But that doesn't mean that we will automatically give him every area of our lives. It doesn't mean that we will never ever stray from him, that we will never ever search for fulfillment in our lives elsewhere. One of my favorite hymns is Come Thou Fount, and I love this line because it describes me all too often. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You see, whether the Colossians were bored with Christ or they were unprepared to face the objections or, or uh, of the culture, a thousand different reasons. The reality is sometime in Colossae, they were in danger of looking for fulfillment, looking for meaning somewhere else than Jesus. Take a look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Paul uses very graphic language here to describe the danger that, uh, that's facing the church in Colossae and really that's facing us today, even if we don't realize it. And in fact, if we don't realize it, that makes it even more dangerous for us. Paul says that this false teaching, that if the church is not active looking for fulfillment in Christ, this false teaching will easily take believers captive by false forms of fulfillment. The word Paul uses here for capture, it's a rare word, oftentimes used to refer to brutal kidnapping. His warning here, taken in connection to the previous two verses, is clear. He's saying, keep your focus on Christ, because if not, you're going to be kidnapped by false philosophies. Now, when Paul uses philosophy here, we have to recognize that he's not referring to philosophy in the same way that we use it today. Philosophy is, is 
uh, not just a specific field of study in the first century, but it also refers to an entire way of making sense of life. It's, it's the glasses that you peer through to understand life. It's what you make, use to make sense of the world, where you look to understand what the aim of your life is. Philosophy was used to describe any sort of system that tried to make sense of the world and provide, provided meaning in the world. So to use the language that we've been using up to this point, a philosophy is any way of thinking that attempts to provide meaning and fulfillment in the world. Paul says that we are to be on guard against other forms of making sense of the world, other forms of fulfillment in the world besides Christ Jesus as Lord. And you might be saying, well, what exactly are some of these modern-day philosophies, modern-day sources of, of false fulfillment? What are the ways that the people today try to make sense of the world in a way that, that looks different than the, the false teaching in Colossae and yet has the same heart? There's a, a book out there. It's called A Secular Age. Uh, it's written by a man named Charles Taylor, a brilliant, brilliant philosopher and theologian. In this book, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor uh, argues that we live in what he calls an age of disenchantment. Age of disenchantment. He says that as a result of the Enlightenment, there's this skepticism that permeates all of our society when it comes to the supernatural and when it comes to the spiritual. Now, this isn't just a hostile, uh, militant, outside-the-church disenchantment, but it also actually resides within each and every one of us. Our culture trains us to look at the world through the lens of secularism. In this philosophy, in this way of making sense of the world, we no longer live in creation with God as the king of the universe, but instead we live in the universe, a cold, hostile place where our existence is merely by chance and by accident. And instead there is no meaning at all in the world, beside what we see and what we experience. One way that this expresses itself today is what I call secular nihilism. This is, and let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, perfect example is from an episode of Conan O'Brien. Uh, so that's the first time Conan O'Brien will be mentioned in one of my sermons. Um, probably the last time as well. Uh, he, was, uh, he was interviewing uh, another comedian, also a first time mentioned in one of my sermons, Louis C.K., uh, two secularists, if there ever were ones. And Louis C.K. was talking to Conan O'Brien about why he wouldn't let his children have cell phones. And this leads to a tangent where he begins to describe what he calls the meaningless, meaninglessness of life. Listen to this. What the phones are taking away is the ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Because underneath everything in your life, there is that thing, that empty, forever empty. It's that knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. It's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching anything, you're in your car and you just start going, oh no, here it comes. I'm alone. It starts to visit on you this sadness, 
Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. That's why we text and drive. I look around and pretty much 100% of the people driving are texting. They're, they're killing. Everyone's murdering each other with their cars. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for even a second because it's just too hard. Do you see what Louis C.K. is advocating here? He's advocating for a meaninglessness to life that takes courage and strength and a backbone to face, to not distract yourself from. This is secularism at its finest. There's no fulfillment in Christ. There's no fulfillment anywhere. And so embrace the meaninglessness. Embrace the pointlessness of it all. And perhaps if you do that, if you throw off the chains of disillusionment, you will finally find peace. And you will find the closest thing to fulfillment that we can find in this life. But there's another way that this disenchantment of today expresses itself, and this is probably more popular, uh, more familiar to us. Secular hedonism is the way I refer to this. If the form, first form of secularism says life is meaningless, so just embrace that meaninglessness. This says life is meaningless, so live it up and make your own meaning. How often do we see this in our culture? We're surrounded by a culture that only lives for the moment, moving from entertainment to entertainment, from source of pleasure to source of pleasure. If the first form of secularism says that Christ and fulfillment in Christ is a fairy tale, so just embrace the emptiness. This says fulfillment in Christ is a fairy tale, so embrace whatever you think will make you happy. It would be naive of us to assume that we and our children are not susceptible to this type of thinking. This is essentially the message of our culture, of every single commercial, every single form of advertisement that we see each day. It is the oxygen of our culture. We breathe it in without even thinking about it every single day. This message that our lives will be worthless without a new gadget. Our lives will never be secure without a robust retirement plan. Our lives will never be happy until we have the nicest house on the block. Our lives will never be joy-filled without a thousand likes on our Instagram posts. The list could go on and on and on. And indeed, you can probably look at your own areas of your own life where you see this crop, its ugly head. It permeates our culture and it permeates into our own souls as well. One final false philosophy, one way of thinking that's taking us captive, and that is just simply uh, an overly rigid religious morality. Now, here, here's what I'm saying. I, I'm not saying that it's not important for us to live moral lives, to live holy lives. I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek out our sanctification, but if we are not careful, we can begin to think that our sanctification, our growth and morality and holiness and closeness to God actually increases our justification. Our standing before God can be improved by how holy of a life we live. 
So we can begin to believe in a form of works righteousness, that the holier I am, the more acceptable I am in God's eyes, and by extension, the more meaning and fulfillment I will have in this life. Yet we must recognize that Christ doesn't just take us as we are. He takes us in spite of who we are. Our holy living is indeed pleasing to God. It's a part of God's good plan for us and for all of humanity, but it would be a tragic mistake for us to think that fulfillment is found in our own self-justification. Notice how Paul ends verse 8 here. He refers to these philosophies, these false forms of fulfillment as empty deceit. All of the claims of the world, all of the claims that they can offer meaning, significance, fulfillment, they're nothing but empty deceit. And what's more, notice here at the very end of verse 8, it says, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. You might be saying, well, what on earth does that mean? Uh, This phrase, the elemental uh, spirits of the world, is a a notoriously difficult word to translate. It's one word, stoicheia. Some of your translations likely have something that says something along the lines of the basic principles of this world. You might be wondering why the version I am using refers to spirits. Well, the word here in question was used in two ways. It was used to refer to the natural uh, basic elements of the ancient world, earth, wind, fire, and water, but oftentimes it was imbued with a special spiritual significance. The earth, the wind, the fire, and the water were personified. They were gods to be worshipped and pleased. There are countless examples from the time of Christ and before and after where this word stoicheia was used to refer to the demonic to the spirits that must be pleased all around us. And the surprising thing to us with our overly secularized ears is that Paul is actually telling us the root of every single false claim of fulfillment is in spirits that are opposed to Christ. You see, here we see our significance for today. All of these false philosophies, these places of of false fulfillment, just embracing the meaninglessness of life or or making up our own meaning or or religiously, religiously keeping rules can creep into our church, can creep into our own hearts and take our eyes off of Christ. And the reason why Paul tells us that we are not to be kidnapped by these teachings is because they are rooted not in Christ as Lord, but in the demonic. That's why we must be on guard. We must be sure to not allow ourselves to be taken captive by this teaching because it is not just harmless thinking, but it is rooted in those who are opposed to our Lord. We live in a culture that proclaims this type of thinking, that lives in this type of thinking. And so what are we to do? 
What are we to do when we are are tempted to find our fulfillment outside of Christ? Paul finishes this passage by describing that for us this morning. He gives us two truths. Let's take a look at the rest of our passage, picking up in verse 9. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The first truth is this. Fix your eyes on the greatness of who Jesus is. If you want to find fulfillment, if you want to overcome the temptation to find fulfillment in the rest of this world, first fix your eyes on the greatness of who Jesus is. Paul reminds the Colossians that Jesus was not just one God among many. He says that he is the one God. Do not look to Jesus as a source of fulfillment among many. He is the one source of fulfillment. For in Christ, the fullness of deity rests. Notice that Paul, again, emphasizes our union with Christ, saying that if we are in Christ, then we have also been filled with him here in verse 10. There is no need for us to look elsewhere for fulfillment, but instead go further into our union with Christ. The second truth is this. He says, fix your eyes on the greatness of what Jesus has done for us. Verses 11 through 14 describe the incredible, glorious work of Christ for us in his death and resurrection. For those of us who are in Christ, we are united with him in that death and in that resurrection. Those of us who were once dead have now been made alive in Christ because he has forgiven us the massive debt of sin that was weighing upon each of us. There's a story about the reformer Martin Luther. I don't know if it's true or not, uh, but it goes, uh, it talks about him having a dream where he experienced something that describes this quite well. It goes like this. One night in a dream, Martin Luther was visited by Satan who brought to him a record of his own life written with Luther's own hand. The tempter said to him, is that true? Did you write it? The poor terrified Luther had to confess it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, and the same confession was wrung from him again and again. At length, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. But suddenly Luther turned to the tempter and said, it is true every word of it, but right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So it is with each one of us.
the record of our debt to God is great, and yet the forgiveness that God gives us is greater. Why would we ever look anywhere else for meaning, for salvation, for fulfillment, for hope, for joy, for satisfaction? The longings of our hearts are great, and the joy that is found in Christ is infinitely greater. And so as we revel in these truths, as we close, just consider the immeasurable gift of the cross. The words of Paul here in these verses shout so loudly and so clearly to us that in the face of any and every other possible way, uh, whether it's a tradition or a hope placed elsewhere, the longings and hopes of your life and your heart will be found and answered in Christ alone. The longings and hopes of your heart will only be answered in Christ alone. What areas of your life are you not giving to Jesus as Lord? Where else are you looking for supplemental fulfillment to have Jesus and something else? Notice Paul's words in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That verse may seem a little out of place, would have made far more sense, in my opinion, if we would have just ended on verse 14 and the powerful description of uh, what Christ has done for us in the gospel. But Paul wants to leave us with no doubt that Jesus is Lord. And so Paul reminds us that Jesus' victory on the cross wasn't just over our sin, but it was also over every single being and spirit who opposed him. Jesus is described as a victorious general returning from battle, met by the overwhelming cheers of his people. He returns victorious from battle with his captives before him as a sign of their subservience to him because Christ Jesus alone is Lord. How true are the words of the hymn, crown him with many crowns. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Ark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave, who rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Christ has triumphed over the grave and over all that stand against him in the cross. He has forgiven all your sins at the cross Though he didn't need to earn the right to be the Lord of every square inch of your life, he has certainly earned that right at the cross. Won't you look to him?
for fulfillment. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that all too often we do not look to you for meaning, for joy, for hope in our lives. And we ask that you would forgive us. We rejoice that we have been forgiven for those of us who are in Christ. Help us to turn our eyes to you, to the greatness and glory of your name and the greatness and glory of the work that you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.